work, at home, or on the road, you deserve great coffee. A Heine Brothers coffee subscription plan gives you top quality organic and fair trade coffee delivered right to your door or office automatically. You select the frequency, the quantity, and the variety of coffee, and Heine Brothers will take care of the rest, shipping included. Also makes a great gift, so order online at HeineBrosCoffee.com. That's H-E-I-N-E-B-R-O-S-C-O-F-F-E-E.com forward slash subscription and use the offer code the past for five dollars off any gift subscription hey gang welcome to episode 26 of the past and the curious we now have an episode for every letter of the alphabet good thing we chose numbers instead of letters because we'd have to start over over again, I guess, at this point. Huh, that was a good decision on my part. Anyway, my name is Mick Sullivan. Welcome to the show. This is going to be a fun show. I'm really excited to introduce you to some new friends. Both of these stories are about musicians, women who were both most active in the late 1930s, really at the exact same time, which is super interesting. But they were from two different continents doing completely different things. But we'd like to imagine that they would have gotten along had they met. You'll hear the voice of Julia Purcell and sounds from Todd Hildreth on an unfamiliar or perhaps unfamiliar instrument. Maybe you have heard it. See if it's familiar when it happens. Thanks again for listening. I'm Mick Sullivan. Let's do this. When she came to Chicago in the 1930s, Lily Mae Ledford was a long way from the hills of Kentucky. She grew up near an area called Red River Gorge, where her parents were sharecroppers who farmed, among other things, corn and sorghum. It wasn't a glamorous life. During lean times, they'd have to wear underwear made from old, scratchy flour sacks. And when asked the question, how many biscuits can you eat? The reply might have been, how many do we have? The answer to that question was usually, not enough. Nevertheless, in between dreams of biscuit bounties and near-constant labor on the family farm, her parents often sang songs to the children, and Lily May took it to heart. So it wasn't a total surprise that she picked up instruments as they became available, and she started a music group with a few of her siblings. As they say, the cream rises to the top, and before too long, Lily May was the cream at the top of the musicians in her area. She liked to play the fiddle, but by the time she was recruited to Chicago, they wanted her to play the banjo. She would be on the radio there. You see, it wasn't really until 1947 that television was widely available, so for a period of time, the radio was the centerpiece of many family rooms. Silent radio waves were whizzing through the air, captured by the antennas tuned into the right frequencies in homes all over. Families would gather around the electronic device, turn the dial, and find everything from the news to thrilling Western dramas, kids' shows, radio comedies, and of course, a wide variety of music. In Chicago, a station called WLS paid a staff of musicians to provide music of all sorts, and Lily Mae Ledford had moved up alone to the city to play in front of WLS microphones that would broadcast her banjo into thousands of homes. Later, after relocating to Cincinnati, she continued on the radio, but the station wanted to make her a star. 
So they built a band around her, matching Lily May and her sister with two other young women who played instruments from traditional Appalachian music. After adopting flower names like Violet and Daisy to match Lily and her sister Rosie's names, the quartet considered calling themselves the Wildwood Flowers. But as it would turn out, they would go down in history as the Coon Creek Girls. Their music sang through the airwaves, was pressed into wax records, and heard from the bandstand of many a music festival. The Coon Creek Girls, billed as coming from a place called Pinchem Tight Holler, Kentucky, yeah! were dynamite musicians who got audiences dancing and hooting and hollering with energetic and exciting performances. What a good time we had on stage, Lily May wrote, playing mostly fast pieces, jumping up and down, sometimes ruining some of our songs by laughing at each other. Sis, when carried away by a fast fiddle tune, would let out a yell so high-pitched it sounded like a whistle. Those good times on stage took them to some remarkable places because, as it turned out, they had one pretty big fan. Imagine their surprise when an invitation arrived asking the Coon Creek girls of Pincham Tight Holler yeah! to perform at the White House on request of the President Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Now, if you've listened to our episode about hot dogs, you might recall the time when the King and Queen of England visited America and ate hot dogs with the President and his wife Eleanor and a whole mess of other folks. Well, this was part of that trip. So Lily May and the gang probably had to pinch themselves tight to make sure they weren't dreaming when they learned they'd perform music for a room full of people, including not just the president and first lady, but also the British royal family. On Thursday, June 8, 1939, the East Room of the White House was splendid and vibrant. The air buzzed with the natural energy of a crowd eager to hear some of the best music America had to offer and also be seen among the elite company of Washington and beyond. In each hand was placed a beautiful program explaining the selections of performers. The president wished to treat his guests to an evening of the finest music America had to offer in many different styles. There was an opera singer, a famous popular recording artist, and several instrumentalists. One group, called the North Carolina Spiritual Singers, was made up of doctors, teachers, tobacco farmers, hairdressers, and more. Committed to keeping alive the songs their families had sung to them, the group performed traditional African-American music from the slave plantation days their grandparents might have known. Also on the bill was an incredible singer named Marian Anderson. The Roosevelts knew her well, as just a few months prior she had given her famous performance on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial with support from the First Lady in the face of fierce racism and opposition. Listen to episode 18 to hear that story. The third act that evening would be the Coon Creek Girls. And while the internationally famous Marian Anderson would only sing two songs, the ladies from Pinchem Tight Holler, Kentucky would perform four songs. When asked by the New York Times if the ladies were nervous about such a momentous event, their manager said they weren't. They were brought there to do what they do every day, make great music. All they had to do was be natural. As it turned out, they might have been a little nervous. When it was their time, they literally ran out on stage, and two of them started excitedly playing before the other two had their instruments ready to go. The sisters mixed up some of the verses in a few songs, but laughed and hollered their way through the music. 
According to Lily, the king, queen, president, and first lady were in the very front row, just at the foot of the stage, so close, she said, that they could have jumped into their laps. If you've ever been on stage before, you might know that queasy feeling that happens sometimes when everyone's watching you. But looking into that room, filled with eyes staring right back at her, Lily had a good feeling. The king was patting his foot, so I knew we were doing all right. And the queen, smiling all the way through the show, sort of kept me going because I wanted to do my best for her. The last song was reportedly a favorite of President Roosevelt's, and it's easy to see why. We know he liked hot dogs, but it turns out he liked biscuits, too. Before leaving the stage, the Coon Creek girls asked that eternal question in the form of a lively song, how many biscuits can you eat? Biscuits weren't actually on the menu that night at the White House, but the ladies did enjoy the fancy caviar sandwiches served instead. It appears that Lily May's only regret came upon meeting the queen. All week long, in anticipation of the introduction, she had practiced her curtsy. One doesn't meet a queen every day, so it's a good idea to get it right. But when she finally stood face to face with Queen Elizabeth, she just flat out forgot, and all she could muster was a simple, how do you do? That beats her other inclination. I wanted to hug her neck, Lily said. Psst, I think it's... It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, it is quiz time. Don't you know? Well, in 1841, 1841, it was a long time ago, a man named Adolf Sachs invented a brand new musical instrument. What was it? It was a saxophone, duh. The word saxophone is an eponym because it comes from a person's name, in this case, Adolf Sachs. But you already knew that because you listened to episode 20 of The Past and the Curious, didn't you? All right, question number two. In 2013, a badly damaged violin was purchased at auction for 1.1 million pounds, or 1.7 million dollars. It wasn't a particularly nice violin, but scientists had recently proven it was somewhere very notable in 1912. And a lot of times things are valuable because they're at famous places. In 1912. Hmm. Can you guess where it was? It was the violin played by the band leader aboard the Titanic. And as the ship sank, The musicians continued to play through the panic, the panic on the Titanic, in an effort to bring peace and order to the terrible confusion on deck. It is believed that this helped to save quite a few lives. So good work, musicians. Question number three. Which famous signer of the Declaration of Independence invented an instrument made of glass bowls spinning in water way back in 1761. The same man is credited with founding some of America's first public libraries and fire departments, as well as inventing the lightning rod, bifocals, whole bunch of other stuff, including the Franklin stove, which is named after him. 
Ben Franklin. It was Ben Franklin. And he invented the glass harmonica. You know how if you run a wet finger around the lip of a really nice glass, sometimes you can make it sing? Imagine a whole bunch of those in different sizes turned on their side, nested into each other and spinning in a shallow pool of water. The player would come up to that and touch the edge of one or more of the glasses to get the desired haunting tones. And that is thanks to Ben Franklin. Think of an instrument, anything at all. No matter what you thought of, it's a safe bet that in order for it to make music, you have to touch it. You might touch it with one hand or two. You might touch it with a bow. You might touch it with your lips or even your feet. Perhaps you hit it with something else, but yes, literally every instrument in the world requires the player to make some sort of contact with that musical instrument. Every instrument except for one, that is. When people first witnessed a performance by Clara Rockmore, they were probably confused. She played nothing that resembled any musical instrument anyone had ever seen in the 1930s, and she certainly didn't touch anything. Instead, in front of her stood a box mounted on a stand, and Clara kept as still as possible. Her only motion would be the soft and subtle movements of her left hand through the air near an antenna on top of the box. As she placed her right hand near another antenna on the side, a speaker nearby breathed to life with a long, smooth, and unfamiliar noise. As her hands moved, the sound immediately changed. The tiniest movements created a new sound. It was like a magician, casting spells in the air. Absolutely no physical contact was made, and yet the strangest sounds filled the room. And where most people would hear noise, she heard music. In 1915, when she was four, Clara literally dragged a violin case into an audition at one of Russia's most prestigious music academies. She was so small, the people didn't know what to do with her, so they picked her up and put her on top of the table. And with her little violin in her hands, she proceeded to knock their socks off. Before saying a word, the adults in the room paused to put their socks back on. Because it's pretty cold in Russia. And then they opened their mouths to invite her to study music with them. She was the youngest person ever in the school. And while other children were busy learning the Russian version of the ABCs, Maybe it's the Abbe Vase? Well, whatever it was, she was busy learning from some of the most impressive violin teachers in the world. But at this time, her country was in turmoil, and it was a dangerous place for a Jewish family like hers. So just before her teenage years, they had to flee. Her sister, a pianist, described it as a long journey and one in which they had to cross several borders many illegally. They weren't even sure if they would be able to get a visa to America, but they were still willing to take that risk. And in 1921, it happened, and the family arrived at Ellis Island. They soon found safety and security in New York. 
There, Clara continued her violin studies and was regarded as a virtuoso. She was incredible, wildly dedicated, and her future was bright as a violinist. And though she was still pretty short, she no longer had to stand on a table, preferring the solid safety of, you know, the ground. But the physical stress of her constant practice, matched with the malnutrition of her childhood, took its toll on her body. She soon developed a pain in her arm that was so terrible and so troublesome that she simply couldn't play. She tried everything. She once said she'd even have it amputated and sewn back on if that would help somehow. But there were no Dr. Frankensteins to try such a ghastly experiment. Another doctor instead tried immobilizing her arm so she couldn't use it at all for six months. But all that really did was make it hard to eat dinner and take notes in school and look at her wristwatch. Nothing worked. And before long, she made the even more painful decision to quit playing violin altogether. It was terribly sad because everyone knew she had so much promise and was very much in love with creating music. But her body simply would not let her. Can you imagine having to quit something that you dedicated so much time and energy to? But then she met Leon Theremin. Leon Theremin was also from Russia and a scientist who invented an instrument, mostly by chance. He was a smarty shtani, which is, I guess, how they say smarty pants in Russia, but I could be wrong on that one. He was working on a machine to detect the presence of gases in air. Uh, no, <laughs> I think that kind of gas is pretty easy to detect without a machine. <sighs> anyway, he decided to alter it with an alarm to alert the user with a sound. No, not that kind of sound, an audio tone, like an alarm. Yeah, yeah, that's better. Once he had the alarm rigged on this gas detector, he was curiously excited to discover that as he put his hand closer to the sensor that he had installed, the pitch of the alarm changed. Like we said, Leon was super smart, and he not only had all sorts of electronics and scientific experience, but he was also a musician who played the cello. So it occurred to him that someone could learn to control this pitch generated by his machine. The sound was airy and long and would raise lower and higher like a slide whistle as the hand moved closer and farther away. It was a purely electric instrument, the first of its kind, and he originally called it the aerophone. Eventually, though, the instrument would be known by his name as the theremin. In its most common version, it looks like a box with one metal rod rising from the top on one side and a horseshoe-shaped rod extending from the right side. When a performer puts a hand near the tall vertical rod, the pitch changes. The farther away, the lower the pitch. The closer, the higher the pitch sounds. The other horseshoe-shaped rod controls the volume, so if you get close, it gets louder. Move your hand away and it gets quieter. It's really difficult to control, and where an instrument like a violin had generations of methods and pedagogy and learning to share with a student, this instrument was a blank slate. 
no one besides Leon Theremin knew how to control it, much less play music with it, and he even struggled at that. Upon hearing it, Clara Rockmore found something that would fill that violin-shaped hole in her life. And remember, there was no set way to learn it, so when we say she wrote the book on it, after mastering it, we mean she literally wrote the book on it. Seriously, it's called Clara Rockmore's Method for Theremin. It starts with the advice to remember you are dealing with air. Think of your fingers as delicate butterfly wings and you will get much further than if you use strength. And what follows after that looks like many other instrument method books, but this one teaches you subtle hand motions to use in midair. No touching. No touching! If you get it right, and you disrupt the instrument's magnetic field in such a way, well, you can begin to make any music that can be made on the violin, with a ton of practice. Before long, Clara was performing in concert halls with orchestras and on the radio with this strange new instrument. Composers wrote new, never-before-heard, heck, never-even-imagined music for her to perform, and in most places, the concerts went incredibly well. Except for one concert in Georgia. Remember how we said the instrument was electric? Yeah, without electricity, the theremin is as musical as a brick, or a rubber tire, or a ham sandwich. But that didn't register with the audience in Georgia. You can't blame them, though. The idea of an electric instrument was new, and as unfamiliar as the sound it made. It was the 1930s. This made people wildly curious, and in an effort to satisfy Georgia's curiosity, a concert hall was booked, advertisements were printed, tickets were sold, and the stage was set. And then, the power went out. No problem, they said. We have these beautiful candelabras. They will light the darkness. It's not the darkness I'm worried about. We'll put them around the room. It'll be gorgeous. The audience will love it. The audience will hear nothing. We can't turn them away. Could we persuade you to play acoustically like the violinists do? I'm afraid the instrument only works electronically. You see, there's an electromagnetic field that I... Oh dear, but the governor will be here, and we mustn't disappoint him. Well, he is bound for disappointment. Here he is now. Mrs. Rockmore, what a pleasure. We've been looking forward to your show. And we can't let a little old power outage keep the audience from hearing your wonderful music. Yes, about that. But madam, you will look so beautiful in the candlelight. Yeah, duh, of course I will. But you need to listen to me. Really hear me on this. No electricity, no theremin. It won't work. It's basically a ham sandwich. <laughs> that sure does sound delicious right now. But you're saying... No music? Dude, what do you not get about this? Clara did find enough electricity to play the theremin well into her old age, recording her first actual album in 1977 at the age of 66. She played often with her sister Nadia on the piano and continued to do so until passing away in 1998. How many biscuits can you eat this morning, this morning? How many biscuits can you eat this evening, this evening? How many biscuits can you eat? Oh, nine and ham meat this morning, this 
Was that the first recording of Bluegrass Theremin? I think it was. Thank you, Todd Hildreth and Julia Purcell. Such wonderful people. And you're such wonderful people for joining us. We really hope you enjoy it because it is a pleasure for us to create and a privilege to bring it to you. Hey, we have a new Patreon sponsor to thank. Actually, three of them. Emmy Tucker. Emmy Tucker. And Kevin, too. Emmy and Tucker, we're so glad that you enjoy the show. And if you, you who are not Emmy or Tucker, are listening and you enjoy the show too, there's so many ways you can support us. One great way is to get on iTunes and leave us a review. Five stars is great. And write us something nice. That helps us in the charts and it helps people find us. And we want people to find us and enjoy us just like you. So thank you very much. This has been The Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan and I'm going to be back in December with a new episode about games. That seems appropriate, right? And beyond that, we have so many great plans for 2019. We can't wait to share them with you. Already working on a lot of episodes right now. So stay tuned, stick around, keep coming back. We'll keep making them. Thanks again. This is The Past and the Curious. <laughs>